Hello and welcome to Let's Talk University of Bradford, the podcast that looks at all things Bradford. My name's Chris and I'm your host. Our topic in this episode is the Fun Moves Project, which is a school-based screening program for fundamental movement skills, or Fun Moves. It seeks to identify children that may benefit from additional support, improving children's health and educational attainment. I'm joined by Dr. Lucy Eddy, a postdoctoral research fellow in the Faculty of Health Studies at the University of Bradford, who developed the Fun Moves programme as part of her PhD. Hi, thank you for having me. And I'm also joined by Sean Phelan, a paediatric occupational therapist working at St. Luke's Hospital in Bradford, who helps undertake the assessment of children's fundamental movement skills um, in a clinical setting. Hi, morning. Okay, so before we dive into looking at the project in a little bit more depth and, and sort of what, what it is, what it does, what you hope to achieve and how that works, I think it's quite important that we define what fundamental movement skills are, just so we've all got a good foundation to work from. Sure. So uh, fundamental movement skills are sort of what we call the building blocks that children learn to be able to participate in physical activity and sport. So things like running, jumping, hopping, throwing, kicking, catching and balance. And I think from an occupational therapy perspective, uh, fundamental movement skills are those underlying skills that allow children to take part in daily living and those activities that are going to help them achieve their developmental milestones and those activities that are going to help them over time gain independence from the parents. So things like dressing and um, looking after their own personal hygiene needs, uh, things like that. So it's everything from the small movements to the big movements and it's just how people engage with the world around them and that kind of thing. It is, yeah. Excellent. So that's given us all a good foundation knowledge of what we're talking about when we say fundamental movement skills, which will help us understand as we discuss it in a bit more depth. So you've got this Fun Moves project that you developed as part of your PhD, Lucy. So what made you decide to look into this and how did it initially come about and what? how did that begin? Yeah, so I guess we'll touch on this a little bit later with Sean and his his sort of clinical expertise, but we know that there are long waiting lists for children with motor and coordination problems. We know that health inequalities mean that parents from lower socioeconomic statuses and those from ethnic minorities mean that those parents don't always access those services as readily as their white British counterparts. So we know that not only are children waiting a long time, there's also children that aren't being seen. And more often than not, those children are probably the ones that need to be seen. There's been a lot of research that has shown that these children are more susceptible to coordination problems, particularly with their fundamental movement skills. I don't know, Sean, what's your experience been? Yeah, um, so I think we uh, in the CDC, that's the Child Development Centre at St Luke's, uh, we're experiencing an increased level of referrals for children with movement and coordination issues. And those referrals can uh, come from school, they can come from the GP, uh, but more often than not, they'll come from a consultant who's needing a little bit of extra evidence before giving a diagnosis. Uh, so we'll see children in clinic and assess their movement, assess their activities of daily living. And some of that's based on the parent narrative. So parents are telling us what they're seeing at home, where they think the difficulties lie, what is their main concern for their child. Um, if we feel it's necessary, then we can move on to a, what's called a standardised assessment. So in Bradford, we use the what's called the Movement ABC, which is a battery of activities that we take the children through. And at the end of those activities, we end up with a score, a percentile score. And that lets us know whether there's uh, 
genuinely reasons for concern with that children's movement coordination, whether that child may need monitoring over time or whether there is no concern and maybe the things that have been observed uh, were in isolation and, you know, so it just limits the level of concern for that child. But equally, we feed that back to the consultant They've then got our clinical reasoning. They've got something that's science-based, something numerical that helps them then uh, come to a decision about that child and perhaps offer a diagnosis. Yeah, so I guess that's sort of one side of why we started this this sort of programme of work. The other side of this is that we're seeing in the literature an increasing number of children with poor fundamental movement skills, not necessarily clinical movement skills like Sean would see, um, but just lower than you would expect. Um and really, we thought, well, if these children are not being picked up either because of health inequalities or because there's just children who have these poor movement skills that aren't necessarily reaching the clinical threshold to start getting support, we need to start identifying those children so we can put support in place. So we started looking at the standardised tests, like Sean said, the movement ABC, that's a big one in the UK. Um, and we realised that if we're wanting to screen every child for these difficulties because they have profound impacts on later health and education, that's not going to be feasible in a school setting because the movement ABC, for example, takes about an hour per child, which if you're asking a school to do alongside all of their core curriculum is just not going to be feasible. So one of the things we did was um, do a national questionnaire for teachers to look at what would be feasible in a school setting. We found that actually there was quite a lack of knowledge on teachers front about what fundamental movement skills are, why they're really important and why it should be crucial for schools to be looking at these skills. And then they also gave us some feedback on guidelines as to what a school-based assessment should look like as well. Um, and what we found was that, unsurprisingly, tests that already exist did not meet feasibility guidelines for schools. Um, so, yeah, we started off on a journey of developing a new tool that would both hopefully help in a clinical sense, but also help schools to really identify those children that might need that little bit of extra support, whether that be that they can be supported in a school setting because they're just a little bit behind their peers or whether they need more formal support in a clinical setting like occupational therapy and physiotherapy later down the line. So it's identifying the children who maybe don't meet clinical thresholds but might need some support and I guess knowing that there's an issue or knowing that there's some support required is the first step to be able to help them even if that doesn't need a lot of help it's knowing that there is some requirement there and identifying it in a way that schools can actually manage like say an hour per child if you've got several hundred students in a school is not going to be feasible to do that it's going to well, it's going to take you know several hundred hours to do it and that's just not going to fit within an already stretched system it's also interesting to find out that you how much impact uh, how much input sorry you had from teachers and from from schools so you're not just designing this based on some academic research you did in an office somewhere you've gone out and spoken to the people on the ground who are engaging with these children to try and figure out the best way to uh, address the problem yeah, and I think that's really important because particularly for schools, they're so busy. They've already got a lot of priorities <laughs> that they need to be sorting out. So they're measured on what Ofsted want them to be measured on. So standard maths, English literacy rates. This is not part of what they're assessed on. So if, if we're going to get schools to do it, what we really need to do is make it as accessible as possible so that not only they can find these children, but they can start to learn more about why they're important and how it might link to their more core academic values. And then going on from that, from an academia perspective, what were your initial aims with this when you first started uh, started looking at it during your PhD, I believe, at Leeds? What were your aims when you did that? And then 
how has that progressed forward on, on your timeline? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You're making me think back a few years now. Um, so originally the aim was to develop a school-based screening tool, which which we have achieved. Um, it took three years almost um, and testing sort of over 1,200 children across Bradford. Um, I suppose the aim largely was to make it feasible for schools and we hope we've done that. We've aligned it with uh, the sort of teacher questionnaire I mentioned earlier so it can assess a whole class in 45 minutes to an hour so within a PE lesson it uses resources that schools already either have um, so things like beanbags or it uses really cheap resources like uh, electrical tape to mark out the grid but that is literally all you need to be able to do for moves we can go in we can chat to a school give teachers an arrow of training and then they are sort of empowered to do those assessments themselves so it's not needing researcher input it's not needing clinical input at that point it's just about the school being empowered to figure out which children might need that additional bit of support. So, yeah, I think we've met those two aims. And then I think the aims have sort of shift, not shifted a little bit um, since I met Sean um, in terms of this was sort of never designed to be a clinically useful tool uh, in a sense, but it, it may well be. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, from our perspective, we were looking at fun moves and not initially looking at fun moves. So historically, we obviously noticed the increase in referrals. We were looking at how can we see more children um, in a short space of time. Uh, we had the addition of a new member of staff, uh, a lady named Laura Dent, physiotherapist, and she'd come from Mid-Yorks. They had uh, a similar problem in their area and their solution was to come up with um, something called fit to learn and fit to learn was rolled out in mid-yorks it was an award-winning intervention again school-based uh, from that there was a something called pindora's box and um, pindora coming from pinderfields hospital um, so they uh, rolled this out in mid-yorks in schools and it was a battery of strategies and activities to increase uh, a child's um, fundamental movement skills. So it was fine, gross motor, balance, and it was graded. So it came from a, almost like a real medical model, really. Um, so it was over five different levels uh, that worked really well. So initially in Bradford, we were looking at something like that. Um, then speaking to other teams, we were directed towards uh, a chap near called Nick Preston. And Nick was working with Lucy and Nick's contribution was looking at physiotherapy interventions for children with fundamental movement skills. So Lucy's tool uh, would screen the children, identify who needed input, and then the hope was that then Nick's interventions would kick in after that. So they would be handed to parents uh, as, a, as a strategy, as a way forward for them. So you found the solution to the problem right on your doorstep here in Bradford? After casting a very wide net, yes, myself and um, my boss, Helen Wilkinson, she's a physiotherapist uh, based at St. Luke's as well, uh, we looked at all kinds of interventions and yes, we thought, oh, we've got this thing from Mid-Yorks, perhaps this will work. Then, like I say, we picked up on Nick Preston and then Lucy and the fantastic film moves and yeah it was just like the stars aligned <laughs> it was, it, it's a little ironic that after looking so wide and far that it was right there on our doorstep but I think it's a, a real Bradford story it's it's real good communications between teams uh, if we hadn't been talking to a, a wide 
scope of people, then we would never have come to this uh, to where we are just now. It's nice to know that something that's been developed at uh, Bradford is going to have good local impact, but potentially also much wider impact than that nationally, internationally as well, long term. So finding finding out a story like this where it's, you know, right on your doorstep, helping with a problem you've got here in Bradford, but then it's also potentially wider reaching as well. Hopefully, you know, we can eventually take this and take it further afield, such as Mid-Yorks and, and, and beyond, because uh, it sounds like a useful intervention that can string together. You mentioned there Nick's work. This is an identifier and then that can feed into other work to help give the support that those children need. And like you said, deal with more people, more children, uh, more quickly without sacrificing the quality of the assessments and the quality of the care they're receiving. Yeah, to be honest, we were very, yeah, we were being a bit, self, <laughs> a bit selfish at Bradford. Uh, we were kind of looking at can we, how many children can we see? Like Lucy's already said, this using the standardised assessment, it's one child, it's an hour's assessment, plus the admin time on top. And, um, you know, we, we are kind of scrutinised daily for what activities that as therapists that we're doing and what's our workload, how productive are we? And if we can see 30 children in an hour, uh, that's that, they're the kind of numbers we want to see. Um, yeah, so that was our, our perspective. I wouldn't call that selfish, it's just efficient. And if you can still see those children without sacrificing the quality of the assessments and you're not you're not giving them a lower quality of care or attention, you're just doing it in a more effective way to make sure that more people get seen. If anything, you're benefiting more people, not, not less or being selfish in any way just by increasing those numbers. And it's a good approach to try and do that. More efficiency without sacrificing quality is, is definitely a, a measure to work towards. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like you like you mentioned before, I think Bradford is the perfect place to start an initiative like this. Um, we've got a high proportion of children that in theory should have poor fundamental movement skills. So we've got the population here, but we also have very willing and accessible schools because of the hard work that's been done by the Born in Bradford project. So we've been really lucky in the sense that uh, schools have really helped us drive this forward and like you say we can now expand out so for example in a couple of weeks I'm going out to Batley we've got four schools uh, that are joining us from Batley and it's already being trialed out in Spain which is a bit wild um, so it is it is going further afield and like you say we've had interest from uh, down south in Sussex as well haven't we with occupational therapy down there so it's slowly slowly creeping out. <laughs> and you say that in Bradford we've got the the children that theoretically should have have these fundamental movement skill uh, deficiencies does that come back to what you were saying earlier about underrepresentation in healthcare for ethnic minorities and that kind of thing and obviously we have a population in Bradford that covers a lot more, a lot more diverse types of people uh, than perhaps other cities do yeah absolutely so those exact things and also the fact that we've got a really young population we've got a lot more children in the city than we have generally across uh, other cities in the UK. So not only do we have a lot of children to study, we also have those very um, different communities that we can look at as well. So we've talked a lot there about where this came from, how you developed it, um, how it's been involved in the occupational therapy side of things um, and, and how it was developed from the PhD to where it is today. I guess now, what's your approach now? So all that development's happened, time has passed, things have evolved naturally as, they, as they're wanting to do. What's your approach now with it getting out there, going to schools in Batley and, and similar, and where do you want to take this in the future? 
Yeah, so I guess this is two-pronged. I'll go from the academic front first and then Sean can can maybe take the the clinical. Um, In our sense, what we really need to start doing now is creating what we call a normative database. So really figuring out what levels of development children are at and where we can place people on this spectrum of fundamental movement skill development in terms of fun moves performance. So that'll involve getting as many schools on board as possible across the UK and trying to really sort of situate those ability levels but also it'll allow us to look at geographical differences it'll allow us to look at demographic differences so things like ethnicity which is why Bradford is such a great starting place but if we can broaden out and get a more nationally representative sample it'll only mean that the people we're sending on to clinical services like Sean's are the right people we want to make sure that the children that these guys are seeing are actually in need of that support because their services are already overwhelmed as we've heard so yeah, Sean, what about the clinical side? Yeah, I think from the clinical side, we needed to understand fun moves uh, as a as a process. What 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 does the data mean to us? Um, what is the likelihood of high numbers being referred to us as a result of this mass screening? And so um, we were very lucky recently that we had a, a couple of students from Bradford University. Uh, Anna Louise Mobs and Claire Starkey. Claire Starkey, sorry, sorry, Claire. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, those guys did an absolutely brilliant job. So they were able to take children from our existing waiting list. Uh, they were seen in clinic. They were screened using the fun moves, and from that we've been able to determine. Um, which children need to be seen in clinic, so we need to put them back on the waiting list, they need to be seen, and which children actually did very well on the fun move screen and don't need to be seen by a by a therapist. So we were hoping with the fun moves that we'd take like a triangular model approach to it. So uh, children would be screened in school. Um, from that point, then they would be referred on to, say, um, global or universal um, strategies. So it would be whatever's available in that city. And so it would be um, maybe local council-based groups, things like that. Just getting your children out, doing more, getting them out of the bedroom perhaps, um, doing things like park run, things like that. From the universal, then we'd move on to like standard intervention. And that that would be... um, more based on physiotherapy uh, programs, that kind of thing. And then there would be the targeted, and that would be a, a referral to clinic. We would then accept that referral. So there would be a triaging process. So once fun moves is rolled out in Bradford, um, we would then look at those uh, referrals. And the first question we would be asking parents is, following fun moves, what did you do with your child? Did you experience uh, universal input did you go for standard input what did you do because without those prior inputs then coming straight to see a therapist uh, you need to try these first uh, and, that, yeah. and I think as well just to mention uh, some of the other hard work that Hannah Louise and Claire did while they were on placement with us they um, they created actually a sort of intervention booklet for uh, parents based on occupational therapy techniques things they can do in the home within their normal routine just changing slight things so for example rather than walking to the bathroom why doesn't your child hop to the bathroom to get that practice in so things that can be done without taking half an hour out of your day to do this very regimented routine um, that they can be given either while they're on the waiting list or like Sean said as uh, as universal intervention 
sort of for parents. What we're also looking to do is create a school version of that. So things that schools can do to either add into PE to help that are based on occupational therapy, physiotherapy practices, or just when the child's moving around school, if they're in the playground, what opportunities do you need to get them to get them to move more uh, and learn these skills? So, yeah, I think the universal intervention is probably going to be another next step for us as well in terms of trying to get some advice out there for schools as to what they can be doing with these things because we know that the levels of knowledge about these skills are poor um, and schools have limited time so if we can give them a paint by numbers almost um, it's going to make their lives easier. And it's making it more fun for the children as well rather than being this you have to go and do this thing for 15-20 minutes whatever it is it's things they can put into their day particularly for young children make it a bit more fun a bit more accessible for them it's less of a chore and more of just an activity that they can do and it's funny that you mentioned the word triage there i was actually thinking of asking a very similar question it's like the way you were describing it came across to me as rather than this narrow funnel of they get put on a waiting list to get seen it takes a long time it seems almost like this is allowing a triage at the bottom and then it spreads those children across all of the available resources to help them rather than having to get this bottleneck where they're not able to access this, this or this because they have to get to this bottleneck first. Whereas this sounds like it'll make those things available to them potentially sooner rather than having to be seen by you first on this one one input to then get further help is that about right it is yeah um so the the students were able to actually break this down for us in a way that we could understand because we like to say we were very focused on numbers and so from the student perspective they were sort of it was a marriage really of the medical model which is based on waiting lists and the community model so we've got the screening tool out in community we've got people empowered and they then come in to us and there are interventions they can be doing before they end up on our clinical waiting lists and and so that was that was really fundamental (laughs) (laughs) you pardon the pun and so yeah that that was an, an important step for us to get us away from the numbers and thinking outside the box a little bit and and the students were very very good at challenging us challenging our thinking our preconceived ideas of where this was going to take us we were really fixed on where we wanted to go and the benefit of having these students is that we've actually changed our view we've been steered screaming and kicking in some cases uh, down a different pathway and uh, yeah it's, it, it was absolutely a fantastic experience having these guys on board and they've definitely changed our our view fully agree from an academic front as well because they are clinical trainees um, having occupational therapy students come into an academic setting and really immersing themselves and and showing us what should be done in a clinical sense was really helpful so I think it was a two-way street really helpful for Sean and his team but also really helpful for us they were sort of a conduit between the two and I think like you say this triaging process what it also allows is those children that are maybe just falling behind a little bit that aren't necessarily at clinical threshold for developmental coordination disorder which is the the sort of diagnosis you would get for um coordination and motor skill difficulties generally um it allows those children to maybe catch up if they're having that universal intervention in schools, so they're not ending up on Sean's waiting list, so they're not ending up in services that could be better used for for children that do have that clinical need. Taking people away from ever getting there, kind of taking them off the the list that might eventually reach the point of clinical intervention before they even get there and, and making those lists shorter in the long term is definitely a win. Yeah, I think the, uh, the idea that we use a standard uh, option 
for children. It gives them choice. So it's very client-centred. So you've been screened, we've identified an issue, and then it's a conversation between the school and parents. So the school are going to identify what is out there, and then there's an option then given to the child, given to the family. They're actually then choosing where they're going to take the next step. Uh, and that's really important to us as clinicians is that client-centred base. And it's uh, going back to what you're saying about the students there as well. So it's allowed you to come to that client-centred kind of very much focused on what their needs are, which is fantastic. And you were saying that the students helped you get there by changing your view and then it's done the same academically. It's always interesting, regardless of the subject, to see how two siloed individuals, groups, can be brought together by some connecting thing and basically your two silos are no longer separate anymore, allowing you to work together more effect- effectively. And that came about by these students who were kind of in both worlds and always good to learn and, and adjust your views based on, on those people and listen to listen to those situations because it can lead to some really powerful things. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the, the patient group was important too. I think it offered Lucy a different perspective. These children had already been uh, seen by a medical professional and had been referred to us for having movement and coordination issues. So just to give you some numbers, um, I think the uh, total number of children seen was about 17. And of that, there was an almost 50-50 split that, some of the children were identified as having movement and coordination issues and that they would need to be seen in clinic by a clinician but equally there was a number of children there that did very very well and so when the letters go out to parents those letters will be saying we've not actually identified any movement and coordination issue um you know and as a result your children won't be seen in clinic uh, and that's a real positive thing and that's hopefully where this, the fun moves is going to work really well in schools we are anticipating that we are going to end up with seeing more children but equally we're going to be identifying a lot of children that don't have movement and coordination issues that may be struggling with life skills things like handwriting particularly in school uh, manipulating those tools for, for recording and so what else is going on so it kind of broadens the, the, the question, really. And those 17 children came from a list of people who'd already been put on a waiting list for a reason. Yeah. So you then take that out to the broader spectrum of children in schools, bigger class sizes, multiple classes, and you're able to kind of get that splitting of people that do and don't need help more accurately on a much wider scale. And it just, like you say, it's a triage. It allows you to get the right people. So even if you do get an increasing waiting list, like you said, you expect you know that the people on that list are people who do need intervention. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, again, through the triaging process, the questions are what standard exercise have you been involved with? Where have you been? What have you looked at? What have you tried? What standard uh, programmes have you followed? And then, okay, you followed those. There's still a problem. Let's see you in clinic. Yeah, and I think um, just to follow up on on that before when you were talking about the numbers, I think that's really important for Sean and his team because anecdotally, Sean and Helen have have said to us, we get a lot of children through the door that we don't think have movement and coordination problems, but may have been shunted in from a different service because parents might have uh, brought up concerns about movement and coordination, when in reality, um, not appropriate referrals for Sean's team. So it's nice to have those numbers behind that to quantify it so that Sean and his team can actually say, look, not all the referrals we're getting are actually appropriate. 
it's allowing medical and healthcare interventions that are appropriate for everybody, which means that your system's not overloaded with inappropriate referrals. Everybody wins in that scenario. The children are getting the right care that they need. The facilities are not being overloaded with people who don't necessarily need to be there. You're not wasting their time by having these assessments they don't need. It is a win for everybody to have this tool available to help achieve this. It is, and I think it's a, a Bradford story too. So it's a Bradford hospital working with the Bradford University and research. And, you know, it's a, a real success story. It's something we get excited about at the hospital. Um, usually we're kind of on the receiving end of things. So the, these projects are rolled out and then suddenly we have an increase in referrals and we're scratching our heads wondering why. Uh, whereas in this particular case, we're involved and we hopefully been an asset <laughs> no you absolutely have <laughs> so, so we can kind of see what's coming i think that's a fantastic place for us to end a real success story and i look forward to seeing how this progresses in the future how things develop and what you go on to do so thank you all for listening and thank you to our wonderful guests lucy and sean for joining us to talk about this truly fascinating program be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching the University of Bradford. And as always, everyone, take care.